Amen. I love that song. If you really enjoy that song, uh, just to make another plug, you want to come Tuesday night to our Christmas Eve service. Such a really cool thing to see that with the candles lit and everything. And if you have trouble sometimes refocusing your mind on Christmas and what it's about, again, uh, invite family, invite friends. It's a great, great experience uh, here on Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. It's cool to see kind of a little bit fuller house today, and yet I sit over here and no one's sitting near me. I think you all know that. I'm starting to take it a little personal, so I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll actually be in Luke chapter 2 today as we kind of wrap up our series. And actually, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 as well. And so if you want to find those two uh, areas of Scripture and kind of put a note, put something between those, we kind of jump between those two and tie it all together. Uh, but as you're turning there, I want to tell you about a day that my life was changed forever, uh, where it just absolutely... Uh, just nothing was the same. I remember it like it was just yesterday. It was, um, well, it was supposed to be July 2nd, 2011, but it started two days before that. You see, I think I have a picture up here, right there. Uh, on July 2nd, 2011, my first daughter was born and just completely ruined my life <laughs> in the best way possible. Uh, the very definition of ruin means to damage beyond repair. Literally, my life was not going back to normal after that happened. And what's funny is uh, she is an amazing, wonderful child, but she definitely made things very interesting. You see, uh, three, two days before that, the day uh, before July 1st, when she was supposed to come, we went to the hospital to uh, my wife to be induced because she didn't want to come. And when we showed up at 5 o'clock, the hospital said, hey, we have an influx of babies, and so you're going to have to go back home and come back in three hours. Do you know how hard it is just to go and relax for three hours when you know you're supposed to be having a baby at that moment? Like, we lived in Chickasha, so we go to her parents' house and just kind of sit there waiting for this moment to come. And so finally at 8 o'clock at night, we go to the hospital, and they start to drip trying to get this baby to come, and she just doesn't, so they stop. And then the next day, July 1st, when she was supposed to come, um, around noon, all of a sudden, slowly things start to materialize, start to come, and yet she still doesn't come. And then finally at 3.10 a.m., which I hate, 3.10 a.m., that's very early, she came that early in the morning, this little red-headed girl that completely changed and ruined in the best way possible our life. Like, kids change things, right? If you don't have any kids, <laughs> just wait. Um, <laughs> kids change things in the best way possible. Uh, you know, and honestly, if, if you do your job right as a parent, they should change. If your life goes exactly the same, then you probably are not doing your job as it should be. I say that as we continue our series on stepdads. We kind of looked at Christmas through the eyes of Joseph. And uh, again, I, I preface this every week because I want to make clear, I'm not trying to glorify stepdads or try to worship that in any way, shape, or form, but there is something special, unique about that, taking a child that's not your own, whether it's adopted or, or stepkids or whatever, and loving them as though they are. And, and I come from a blended family. I know the joys, challenges, and, 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 and uh, blessings and frustrations that all come from that. And trying to understand from Joseph's perspective, a little 14 to 17-year-old man who's trying to start his life, who's trying to start, imagine that when you're starting out your profession, you're trying to be the leader of your new household, this new wife, and all of a sudden, a kink in your plan has been thrown. You know how that is, where like you had your whole agenda in front of you. Like my life was all planned out, and then July 2nd, 2011, my plans changed a little bit. Like everything just kind of goes awry in the best way possible. What's it like for Joseph? is he suddenly has this new baby that's really not his own, but yet he's tasked with loving this child his own. We've been going through this series and talking about it, and the hardest thing with this series, to be completely honest with you, and some people asked me when they heard about this series, is Joseph's kind of an obscure character in Scripture. There's not much about him in the Bible. 
I mean, read about him. His name is only mentioned 13 times in Matthew and Luke. Uh, John, Mark doesn't even mention him. There's no mention. John only mentions him once when they're making fun of Jesus, when they say, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter? Isn't, isn't that that guy? Like, he's such an obscure character, and the truth of the matter is, and kind of ruins the entire series, is this, that it's really not about Joseph. It's really not. Joseph, it really isn't about him. As a matter of fact, if I can say that's my big idea today, is just that it's not about Joseph. The whole thing's not about Joseph. And I really want to tie that home and look at it today as we unpack the scriptures. We say, well, this whole series, and if you walk away worshiping or praising or being stuck on Joseph, you've missed the whole point. It's not about Joseph at all. And so hopefully you have your Bibles in Luke chapter 2 by now. If you don't, just uh, become friendly with the person next to you and look off their Bibles. Um, but uh, I want to piece together and kind of piece together Luke and Matthew's gospel. And in case you don't know how Scripture is put together, we have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written about the life of Jesus from four completely different perspectives. Imagine you were telling the story of my life. If you took the account from my parents, they would tell you one perspective about Eric. And then if you took the story of my wife, she would tell you a different perspective about me. If I were to grab someone in the church and ask you, it would be the same person, but it would be four completely probably different stories coming in to tell this narrative about my life. That's what you have with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and Matthew and Luke are coming from different angles. Matthew's talking about from the perspective of Joseph, trying to understand his story. And Luke is from the perspective of Mary. Now imagine as I tell you my story about my kid being born on July 2nd, 2011. I can tell you about my feelings and everything went. But if my wife were here with me, she would tell a little bit different story. But yet it's the same story, right? You would have to piece our two stories together. I'd sit here and say, oh yeah, I remember this. And she would say, uh, Eric, don't forget this little detail right here. And so when we read scriptures, when we read Matthew and Luke, we want to try to merge them together because they are the same story but from different perspectives. Does that make sense? If not, then we're lost. It's just going to be a long Sunday morning right now. And so Matthew starts out, sorry, Luke chapter 1, which we're skipping over because we're going straight to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1 is this whole narrative about how Jesus, how God, Gabriel, the angel of God, comes and tells Mary that you're, not, you're, you're going to have this child. In her excitement and fear, whatever it is, all those feelings, she goes to her cousin Elizabeth, who ma magically becomes pregnant as well with the John the Baptist, to go talk to him or her and tell her about all that's going on. And then Matthew chapter 1, we get the story where it comes in. So she's been talking to Elizabeth in, in Nazareth area and stuff. And then she makes the trek over to Bethlehem where Joseph is in Matthew chapter 1. And Joseph's probably here, as we know from culture, building a house, getting ready, adding on an addition to his parents' house so that they can live and they can completely be husband and wife. I mean, he's probably working on it as she rides up on a donkey or whatever. Imagine that trek as she's realizing, I have to go tell him this news that's probably not going to be selling. She tells him, says, hey... Um, I know you're excited, I know you're making all these plans, but I have to tell you something, like, I'm pregnant, and I've been good, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's kid, it's from God, and Joseph's plan just kind of get blown up in that moment, and we talked about how he's ready to divorce her quietly and just try to do the best thing he knows possible, and yet an angel comes to him in his dreams and let him know, like, listen, I know you're doing what's best in your mind, this is what I need you to do, I need you to take this child and love him as your own, he's going to be the Messiah, he's going to be the Savior of the world, and so he takes him as his own. And we jump back over to Luke chapter 2, we pick up today, as they go back to Nazareth uh, to have this baby. Luke chapter 2 says, in the days, decree, in the days, in, sorry, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. See, this registration took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. 
Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was pregnant. While they were with him there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, a lot of us know that account, but I want to unpack some important details. You see, we start out, we know they're in Nazareth because it tells us a little bit before that's where they are because they have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They, they went back home to Nazareth, to Mary's hometown, to, to stay there until she's much later due. She's probably eight to nine months pregnant this time. And suddenly this decree comes out about this census from Caesar. He wants to have a census. And the census is mo- mo- uh, very similar to what we have today, was to provide an accurate data for the government to determine how to tax you, more or less. Hey, let's get an accurate account, an accurate number, so we can figure out exactly how much to tax this town as well as to do all this other stuff. Now, in ancient Rome, back way even before them, they would do a census about once every five years. And at this time in Scripture, when we read, when Caesar Augustus is in place, they only do this census about once every 14 years. And so, Lo and behold, their luck, what happens in the 14th year when she's eight to nine months pregnant, they have to travel back to Bethlehem. I understand that Joseph and Mary are probably around 14 to 17 years old. In their lifetime, they've probably never had to be a part of a census, and they're probably saying, can you hear the stories in their mind? Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, literally, of all times, we have to make this trek. Of all times, now this has to happen, and the census take place. Now, you might be saying, well, why don't they just skip it, right? Isn't that would be our, our temptation? Just don't go. I mean, you've got a legitimate excuse. She's pretty pregnant. Do you want to make this trek? But in this time and culture, if you were to skip this census, there were severe punishments that came with it. You could be imprisoned for it. You could be confiscated of your property. All your property would be taken away and given to the government. You could face scourging and beating for it. You could even be sl- sold into slavery for not showing up a census. Pretty drastic measures, wouldn't you say? Hey, don't forget to show up. And if you miss it, by the way, you're going to be so-and-so slave for the rest of your life. Like, don't miss out. You want to show up. Can you imagine what's going through their mind? And so they get up and they have to travel. And we find in verse 4 that they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Na- Nazareth, I said, is Mary's hometown. The question comes up is why are they in Nazareth and not Bethlehem? He's already married her, according to Matthew. He's taken her, and they quickly got married. They've had this shotgun wedding, which I know every girl and boy dreams about having someday, right? They have this shotgun wedding, and they get married. And most of the time, you would move in with your family on the husband's side, and yet they go to Nazareth. Why are they in Nazareth? Scripture doesn't tell us, but we can't help but read into it. I mean, Joseph, I told you, at this time would have been preparing a room for him and his family. Like, he had an addition started to be built, and suddenly they're not there. Like, can you imagine he has this half-built portion of the house, and suddenly it's just still half-built, and they get up and leave. There's this ever-constant reminder for his family of, like, what's going on. I can't help but wonder, is it because does Joseph's family just simply does not agree with what's going on? It's a disastrous situation. Like, listen, she cannot be under the roof of our house. This is not going to happen. Is it because he wants to go and be closer to Elizabeth, and so Mary can have a confidence, someone that she can lean on? We don't know, but we, we know this, that the baby has affected Joseph's relationships. Joseph's family dynamic, I guarantee you, would have been rough, been strained, because rumors would have swirled. When he says, listen, uh, this baby's born of the Holy Spirit, his family would have probably done the same thing he did. Like, are you serious right now? You really going to try to roll with that? You want us to buy that? This would have affected his relationships. Can you imagine how Joseph is feeling right now, how Mary's feeling? I, I, I'm getting off. Like, the point is, it, it's not about Joseph, is it? 
It's not about Joseph and his feelings right here. It's not about Joseph. It's about, it's about Jesus. And so they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This distance travel was roughly 70 to 90 miles on rough terrain, often elevated, and you had this rough terrain, and you'd have places where, where robbers would hide out and often rob you, and, and it's just a very dangerous route. And he's taking his wife, who's now eight to nine months pregnant. Now, I don't remember much, but I remember when my wife was eight to nine months pregnant, it was not a pleasant experience. I'd say for me, but you guys would throw stones, so I'll say for her, okay? It was not pleasant. As a matter of fact, several years ago, a BBC journalist went and tried to do this trek on his own. He, he purchased a donkey to do this trek to see what it was like. And this man, this young man who rented this donkey and took this trek, said it took him roughly nine days to make this trek on his own. Imagine that. Eight to nine months pregnant, making a trek on this kind of journey. And all for what? All for what? Tax purposes, right? Don't you love the government sometimes? That is not a political discussion. But... All this is a difficult situation. I try to think of my own wife whenever she was pregnant, eight to nine pregnant. I remember it was the middle of summer, June. It's crazy hot. And, and right about a week before we're given, uh, she gives birth, we, she gives birth to this baby and everything, our, our air conditioning in our house goes out. Yes. And, and the temperature just begins to rise. And, and I'm running around trying to get the air conditioning fixed. I'm calling every favor I can in as my wife's just sweating. My wife is miserable. miserable. I'm like, let's go somewhere else. She's like, no, I want to be at my own house. And okay, we're going to fix this. It's just a very uncomfortable situation. One author went and uh, discussed with a lady and asked her, who was nine months pregnant, said, hey, can you tell me some of your thoughts and feelings right now in your present situation? Like if you were to put yourself in Mary's situation. And so he asked her uh, about uh, your feelings on this journey with Mary, and she said this. She said, at this point in my pregnancy, my pregnancy feels very exhausting. I have body aches and nausea, and I can't sleep. There's just a whole lot of buildup in this time. This is an exciting thing. It's unlike anything I've felt before, but yet it's stressful at the same time. She said, right now I dread riding in a car for longer than 30 minutes. So there's no way Andy, her husband, would be getting me on a donkey. That's not happening, she said. When you look at the art that shows Mary on the journey riding her donkey, she's sitting side saddle and she's smiling. She said, I would imagine her weeping at moments, screaming at Joseph, you did this to me! Maybe she's a little moody. I don't quite imagine it would be so delightful as the pictures portray it. She said, I think I'm terrified in a lot of ways, and I wonder if Mary felt the same way at that moment as well. Like when you begin to picture and begin to understand how difficult this situation is, this would have been miserable for them. Now, well, my wife is in the room. I've got to be careful. This was miserable for her, but it was miserable for the both of us. More her than me. Make sure that's clear. This would have been miserable. Very difficult situation. Can you imagine Joseph in his mind as he's making this trek thinking, why? why, why? I mean, this is not what I envisioned. But again, I, I get off the point because it's not about Joseph. It's not about Joseph, is it? it it's about Jesus. And he gets to his house, and when he gets to his house, and they get to the town of Bethlehem, what happens? They have no place to stay. Why? Because there's no room in the inn. That's what all our, our stories, all the acting out makes. But most likely, a small town of Bethlehem like this did not have a hotel for people to stay in. It would just not be profitable. People would not come to a small town and be using this all the time. Most likely, its original rendering of the word inn means guest room. It was a portion of the family's house that was used specifically when family and friends came into town. They would stay in this guest room. And you think, well, what's going on? Does his family hate him so much? Like, I know you're about to have this baby, but there ain't no way you're staying in this guest room. 
you got to imagine all these people are having to come in for the census. The town is suddenly packed. Their house is probably filled. His house, his family's house is packed. Uh, one author talked about it and said, most likely it's not as bad as you make it out to be. You see, you have to understand some things about cultural what's going on here. You see, for, for them back in this time, childbirth would make them richly unclean for a period of time. Look at Leviticus chapter 2. When you had a baby, it would make you richly unclean, and anything that was around you or in close proximity would suddenly become unclean too. And so for them to put them in the same guest room as all these other guests would what? Make everyone else ceremonially unclean. This would be in a big deal. And so it's like, where's the best place to put them? Well, let's put them downstairs where we keep the animals. It's a private place. You say, that sounds awful, but think about this. Mary would want and need privacy in this moment. She's about to give birth. Do you want your cousins, relatives all standing around, being right there? Do you want a bunch of people in the room? No, she wants privacy. She needs privacy. A midwife in this time would want as much space as possible. Some scholars actually say this would probably actually be one of the most loving things a family probably could do. Say, listen, we're giving you a private area all to yourself. But don't miss the point. The point is this. The point is that our Savior, the, the, heaven, the God of heavens and earth, came down and was born in a stable with animals in a lowly manger. Like the point is his, his lowliness of what he came into. That's what the point of the story is. I, I can just imagine Joseph seeing this. Joseph's a carpenter. Like he makes stuff for a living. I can only imagine he's got a bed that he's already had planned out for this child. Like where he's going to put this baby. He's dreamed about this. I'm going to make the best bed possible. And yet here's, here's my son. And what is he doing? He's, he's sleeping in a feed, feeding trough for animals. This, this is not what Joseph envisioned. This is not the circumstances. This is not with his family around that maybe are sitting here talking about him behind his back in the miserable situations. This is not what Joseph would have wanted. But I'm getting off the point again because it's not about Joseph. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus, is it? And so you see this baby is born. And what a celebration it is. And his life has definitely changed. And verse 8 through 20, you see this miraculous situation where angel shows up in the field to these shepherds who are working at night and announces to them, says, hey, listen, I want to be the first to tell you. You're the first to hear. There's a Savior that's been born. That Messiah, your family, your family's family for years and years have been talking about, has been born today. And they go and they celebrate and they lay eyes on this baby. They lay eyes on this Messiah. And I'm sure shocked and perplexed, they went out to tell everyone else about it. And then you skip on down to verse 21. Look what it says. When they're still in Bethlehem, it says, When the eighth days were completed for their circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it had written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. And so we find out that they take, they're faithful to the commands of the Old Testament. It says on the eighth day, you take the child and you circumcise him. You, you dedicate him to the Lord. The circumcision was a mark of the covenant. Uh, imagine for a moment, this is like baby dedication, yet maxed out to something we can't even connect to. You take your baby and you commit him to the Lord and say, this child is going to be raised in the Lord. And, and at this moment, they would give them the name. And he names him Jesus. Actually, Matthew chapter 1, 25 tells us Joseph named him Jesus. I can just see in Luke's gospel, Mary's telling the story like, yeah, I remember we went and got him circumcised, we named him Jesus. And Joseph's like, hold on a second, I named him Jesus. Like that, that was my responsibility. I can't help but wonder, was this a proud moment for him? Like when he's naming this child, was he like, listen, this is my duty, my responsibility as a father, and I get to name this child. Was he thrilled about that, excited? There's something about passing on this to his kid. 
At the same time, we also know in Scripture that it wasn't the name he chose. They told him, you're going to name this kid Jesus because it means Yahweh saves. It means this is going to be the Savior of the world. Did Joseph have a different mind, name in mind growing up? Did he dream someday about naming his kid Joseph Jr. or Joseph II or what it is? Or was it James? Maybe that was supposed to be his first kid's name. Maybe he had envisioned in his mind a different name for the child, but yet he's told this child will be named Jesus. Was he have a different impression of what he wanted? Again, I get off the point. It's not about Joseph. It's not about Joseph, is it? It's about Jesus. That's what the whole story's about. I love 23. We find out that they go and they get purified. Like as I told you, when you gave birth to a child, you would be ceremonially unclean. And after 33 days after the circumcision, you would go and get purified for your sins. You get purified from this, and it'd be another opportunity to go do this. And when they went, they would go and offer this sacrifice. What's interesting in verse 24, look what it says. It said, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. It's interesting there because actually scripture you go read, whenever they would sacrifice, they would give the Lord, it wouldn't have been two turtle doves or two pigeons, it would have been a lamb. That, that's what you would have sacrificed in place. Why, why are they sacrificing two turtle doves or pigeons in this situation? Because the law actually said if a family was so beyond broke that they could not afford a lamb, you could in place sacrifice two turtle doves or two pigeons instead. It tells us something about what's going on here. Mary and Joseph are so incredibly impoverished, so incredibly broke, they can't even afford the right kind of sacrifice at the temple. And so they have to go for the poorest of poor and sacrifice two turtle doves and two pigeons. Again, it re-emphasizes uh, this whole idea of how poverty and rough Jesus had it, how poor it was. Don't get this wrong. Even though he probably came from a poor family, because of the circumstances of Jesus' birth, because of who he was, and because everyone probably talking about them, it probably financially strapped them. It made it very difficult on them. People probably would not buy carpentry stuff for him because he was that guy and they were that family. This, this financially ruined him. His financial dreams he had, what he thought was going to happen, are suddenly out the window. This is not what he envisioned. Maybe he dreamed about retiring when he got older. Maybe he dreamed about living in the nice home or having nice stuff. His financial goal is just gone. But I, I, I go back to my point. It, it's not about Joseph. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. So Luke kind of ends with that, and you turn to Matthew chapter 2. Hopefully you still have your finger there. In Matthew chapter 2, when we pick up this story in chronological order, you see in verse 1 where Jesus talks about him being born in Bethlehem. And what's interesting account is suddenly in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, you have these, these wise men who, who know the scriptures, who know the accounts of what's going on, and they see this star in, in the east. They see this star hover over Jerusalem. They come looking for this Messiah, and they come to King Herod and say, listen, we're looking for this baby. We're looking for this baby. And Herod, with his own agenda in mind, doesn't want some king, some new Messiah taking his throne and says, let's go find him in his heart. He's going to kill this child as soon as he can. And so they go and find him, and look at verse 9. It says, after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star had been seen as it rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Just entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, verse 13 says, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in dreams, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up and took his child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt called my son. So suddenly, an angel comes and tells him, says, listen, you need to flee. And so they have to run. Why? Because they know that because of this child, now this, this king wants to kill them and kill their kid. And they fly off and they go from Bethlehem over to Egypt, just as you see in kind of the Old Testament with, with the people fleeing. And when they go, this is about a 40-mile trek, roughly. And so they're traveling all over the place. They're constantly on the run. But finally, in verse 23... It says, at verse 19 through 26, it says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream into Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intend to kill the child are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and entered the land of Israel. When he heard that Achilles was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to a town, uh, in a town called Nazareth, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so he flees and he returns to Nazareth. I understand at this time, Joseph has moved about five to six different times in a span of less than three years. Have you ever moved a lot? Do you know how uncomfortable and difficult that is? At one point, I figured out that me and my wife had lived in eight different houses in ten years. Eight different houses in ten years. We, we never unpacked boxes in some situations. We just went from one place to another. Do you know how unsettling and uncomfortable that is? To constantly be on the fly, to constantly never be settled, never feel like you have a true place at home. You're just constantly going from one place to another. Do you know how financial straining that is in a situation? Do it. I hope we never move again. It's a very uncomfortable situation. I remember at one point, we, we just get and moved to Afton, and we felt so homesick. We missed home so much. We, we find out that Joseph has gone to Nazareth. Again, Bethlehem's his home. Joseph, according to Scripture, we find never actually ends up going back home. He never goes back to this place that he dreamed of building. Probably goes and sees every time he visits all that piece, that little piece of the property. He began to build, he began to dream about his kids being raised around their grandparents and their cousins and nephews and all sorts of stuff, and yet he never gets to go home. I mean, this is a completely new life that maybe he didn't want. Maybe he didn't intend. But I go back to the statement, and my point is this. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. It's not about Joseph. It's not about Joseph, okay? Like, you can't get this mixed up. It's not about Joseph. That's the big idea. It's everything that Joseph does from this point on is all about Jesus. Every action, every decision, everything he does from the moment he finds out who this kid is is all focused on and around Jesus. You see, you got to understand something. Joseph understands something that many of us struggle to get. It's that it's not about me. It's not about me. It's no longer about me. It's about this kid. Matter of fact, Galatians 2.20, I love, I think, defines what Joseph gets. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's not about me. And all my dreams, desires, ambitions, everything I once wanted, you know, they're all sacrificed on the cross of Christ because it's not about me. Then why did he do it? Like, why go through all this sort of things? Why does Joseph just completely uproot his life and change everything for this small child? Can I tell you why? Because in Matthew 1.21, Joseph knows something that many of us need to get, that Jesus is his salvation too. It's through Jesus alone that it's his sins are going to be saved for. It's through this little child alone. And everything beyond that is worth sacrificing because this is all worth it. Many of us don't get it. It's not about me. It's not about me. You know how you can tell a good parent from a bad parent? is parents who come and realize that point. 
Some people think because you parented a kid, because you gave birth to a kid, that makes you a good parent. A parent is one who lives and says, it's not about me. This is my life is dedicated to this child. I love about my stepdad. That's what it was for me. It was he said, you know what, it's not about me. And his entire life was dedicated to making sure it's not about me anymore. You know when I realized it? You can put that picture up. Literally a minute before right there. They brought this child, they set her down. I'm laughing because I've been distracted for about three minutes. I'm just staring at this little red-headed child. And it was a moment of shock, not a moment of shock like I'm upset or sad or overly joyful, just comprehending my world in a new light. And it was a moment, I, I, I remember it like yesterday, where I'm staring at this child and I realize my life is never going to be the same. Like, it, this is, it, it can't be the same. Like, I can't go back to doing whatever I want. I can't go back to spending my money and doing whatever. Like, I can't. It, it's, it's not about me. And if I do that, I fail my responsibility as a father to this child. Like, my life from this moment on is forever changed. And literally, as I'm thinking that through my mind, my mother-in-law right there cracks some jokes and gets me to smirk a little bit. And I go right back in the zone of saying, wow, it's not about me. My, my life is going to be different. I'm going to have to die to myself. There's going to be a new way of doing stuff. Can I tell you something? Listen, as Christians, as people, you just have to understand, like, listen, Christmas, it's not about you. Christianity, can I tell you something? It's not about you. Church is not about you. And when, when those things get out of whack, you know where all our problems come is when we come and believe it's all about us. Man, Christmas is about me. It's about me. It's about this. Christianity is about me. And God, what do you got for me? What is this? You miss the whole point. It's not about you. In life, we have to be an obscure character like Joseph. Where, listen, we fulfill a role and understand it's not about me, but it is for me. There's a difference in that. This child came and died on the cross for our sins so I could have a way. And if I don't live a life that's forever changed because of that, then I don't know if I truly get what this is all about. I mean, honestly, have you come to a point where your life is like Joseph's? Like, it's never going to be the same again. Can I say something? If you haven't, if you haven't had that moment, I question if you truly know this Jesus Christ I'm talking about. He will, in the best way possible, ruin your life. He will damage it beyond repair where you can never go back. And if you can, listen, you haven't fully embraced the gift that he's given. It's, it's, not, it's not about you. But it's the gift that's for you. And so some of us need, need to wrap our minds around this concept. So some of us need to grasp hold this idea that, listen, it, it's not about me. So Christ, you, you, you want me? You want me to give up everything for you? I'll do it. You want me to give up relationships? I, I'll do it. You, you want me to give up my financial goals, my financial dreams? You want me to give up my ambitions? You want me to give up my, my home? You want me to give up whatever it is? That's fine, because it's not about me. Why? Because you're the savior of the world, and you deserve it. And so my question, my challenge, my plea to you is this. For Christmas, how, how can you do that? How can you do in such a way, live in such a way that you say, listen, it's, it's not about me? Some of you today maybe need to respond in such a way that is life-changing. Some of you may need to walk forward today and come say, listen, I've never accepted this Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've gone to church. I've been around spiritual things. I'm trying to do right. Listen, it, it, Christianity is not about being a good person. It, it could not be anything farther from that. It's about sacrifice and giving up what you have, saying, God, take all of me because I want all of you. And God will change your life drastically, but it's so worth it. Not many of us are willing to accept the call Joseph did. But I would like to challenge you to. 
So where you're at with your head bowed, your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you just to take a second, just respond whatever way God's leading you. Maybe you've been fighting this Christmas. Maybe it's all been about you. Maybe you come to church and you're upset because you didn't get the attention you need. You didn't get whatever you need. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're upset with God because you were stuck on yourself. My prayer is for you is Galatians 2.20 that, I, that I, you'd be crucified with Christ and that you would no longer live. But Christ would live in you. And everything you do would be for the Son, for the glory of God. So if God's leading you to respond, if God's leading you to come forward, we got Pete up here, we got other elders, I encourage you to come forward and let them talk to you. Make this Christmas about Jesus. So I'm going to give you just, just one minute to respond. If God's leading you, if God's stirring you whatever way, maybe you're a Christian, you've been going to church your whole life, and you just, you've just forgotten. Maybe today's the day you need to choose. Say, God, I'm going to make it about you. So you respond whatever way you feel it. If you need to come forward, please come forward. If you need to come give your life to God, come do that today. thank you so much. You gave up so much for us. You sent your son as a little baby to live a perfect life because I couldn't, to die on the cross for my sins because I couldn't pay it, and to provide a way of salvation because I need it. God, pray you forgive me because I struggle making everything about me sometimes. I can be so selfish. Help me to just live a better life in front of my kids, my family, my friends here at church, just to put you first in all things. I truly feel like all my, my issues would be settled if I would just say, you know, it's not about me. It's about you, God. God, I pray for anybody in the sound of my voice who I, I know you've stirred in their heart a little bit. I know you've kind of maybe convicted them, God. They would follow through on that conviction. They'd follow through on that leading. God, I pray we would hunger for you. I pray we'd strive after you. God, I pray we'd make Christmas about you. God, thank you so much for the witness of Joseph and the life he lived. God, you are good in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.